0: Hello and welcome to the McClifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, Seamus Somani is an author and a doctor. He also quite possibly is a doctor and an author, and we'll talk to him about that. He's worked as a consultant gastroenterologist, laterally in his native Cork, and before that in the NHS in the UK. He retired early last year, just before his 60th birthday, and just before Covid struck. Seamus has also, in the last five or six years, been busy as an author detailing his experiences in medicine and the views he holds on various aspects of living and dying. And I think it's fair to say that, in terms of an author from his medical background, he's extremely readable for those among us who are non medical personnel and not a little unorthodox. His previous books are titled The Way We Die Now and Can Medicine Be Cured? The latter with the subhead The Corruption of a Profession. His writing has been highly praised and one review described him as a wise consultant towards the end of his career telling what he wished he'd known at the beginning. His current book is recently published The Ministry of Bodies which we will talk about but I suppose most simply you could describe it as a tome on life and death in a modern hospital. Seamus, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mick. James, I mentioned there at the outset that you retired on the cusp of 60, which I think is fairly unusual in your line of work. And if I could reference a line in the Ministry of Bodies in which you write about the profession, lurching between boredom and terror, no other career gave you so many opportunities to fail. Is that why you signed out a bit early
1: to to, to get out while the going was good? Well, um, I didn't think uh, when I left that I was burned out. Um, But I've had um, ample opportunity over the year of lockdown to reflect. And looking back on it, I probably was like many, many uh, other doctors. So going at 60 is not at all unusual these days. And in fact, the average age of retirement of a GP now in the British National Health Service is 58 Um, and the average age of a consultant retirement, I think, is about 61. They can't get out soon enough. Um, So burnout um, has been a concern within the medical profession now for several years. And there's various estimates as to the prevalence of this problem. It's reckoned that somewhere, anywhere between a third to a half of all doctors working um, in the English speaking world. So that's Britain, Ireland, the USA, Canada, Australia are suffering from burnout. Now, there are various sort of criteria for, you know, diagnosing burnout, but it boils down to three. First of all, a kind of weariness that um, a holiday won't fix, which I certainly had. Second of all, a sort of cynicism about your work and a degree of detachment from it, which I think I was beginning to develop. And third, a falling off in performance. Now, I didn't think that my performance was suffering, but that's for others to judge. But I I, I, I didn't think I fulfilled that third criteria. But there was no doubt that I had reached a stage of uh, weariness. Um, And I think this is a a problem that has been... uh, um, around medicine now for over a decade uh, or more. It gets worse as you get older. I think that there is a lack of understanding or a lack of insight within the profession into managing our careers as we get older. So you're expected to do the same job at the age of 60 as you do at the age of 30. And you're clearly not the same person. You don't have the same levels of energy. Um, And I've argued for some time that as doctors go into their 50s and certainly into their 60s, that they should be relieved of things like doing nights and weekends, that they should do less acute work, that they should take a greater role in teaching and management and mentoring and so on. So it's a big problem within the profession, a big problem. And I think COVID is only going to make it worse. And the detachment element, Seamus, um, talk to me about that. Well, that is part of the problem of burnout is that uh, the doctor who was burnt out becomes, as I say, um, cynical um, about the job um, and to a certain extent, uh, emotionally uh, detached uh, from it. Now, this has many causes, I think the kind of the weariness feeds into it, but There is a feeling nowadays that uh, doctors are increasingly um, working to protocol and to guidelines rather than using their judgment uh, and their intuition, Um, that they're um, acting increasingly um, on the instruction of managers. Um, And this has led to a sort of feeling of Poor morale uh, within the uh, profession. And I think this is one of the main causes for this type of detachment.
0: Okay, and just before I leave that, just find a small bit interesting in it is we often hear in terms of the HSE, in terms of the Irish system, the potential for burnout and how difficult it is on all who work within the system. But you seem to be suggesting that this type of burnout you're talking about, it's beyond a phenomenon in this country that you see that irrespective of perhaps how very well run a health service may be, you'll still come across that?
1: Yes, it's um, it has become a big issue in the, uh, in the US system and a big issue in Britain. Now, I'm not sure about Australia and New Zealand. I suspect less so because the working conditions for doctors there, from what I hear from trainees who have emigrated to work there are much better within the American system. The pressures are to do with spending most of your day looking at a screen rather than looking at, at, um, uh, patients and filling in paperwork and meeting the requirements for payment and running a business. Within the NHS, I think it's down to, um, managerially set targets, uh, overwork, lack of administrative support. Uh, So it's not an Irish problem. Um, I think the problem is particularly acute in Ireland and has been for a long time because of the unique problems we've had in Ireland for the two decades that I've been back here, which would be, I think, first of all, the lack of doctors in terms of numbers, particularly consultants, but also GPs. And secondly, the, uh, the poor infrastructure in terms of hospital beds, and we've had this trolley crisis now, which is ongoing for the two decades I've been back here. You, you may remember Mary Harney declaring it a national emergency back in 2004, and it's only got worse since then. So all of that, I think, has fed into uh, in, in, into this problem of uh, of burnout. Right. Um,
0: just coming to the book, your most recent book, Seamus, and I um, have to say it's full of anecdotes and various nuggets of wisdom and, and, and plenty of... Whimsy and dark humour, which I suppose reflects your take on your workplace. Just a couple of things that jumped out at me, if I just could touch on them. I love that there's a little anecdote there in the Ministry of Bodies concerning a colleague of yours who was completely overworked in AE, or the emergency department, as it's known. on. And he made, a, I suppose you'd call it an unorthodox appeal to the crowds that had congregated on the ward. I think it was on a Sunday afternoon.
1: Will you tell us about that? Well, this is a kind of an urban myth within the uh, the hospital. Um I don't want to name the person but I guess anybody reading the book who's worked there will know who know who it is. And it's a person I actually I I'm proud to call a friend and I admire him very much as a doctor also. I think the point I was making was that he was there as the only emergency consultant for several years and was permanently on call. I mean that is an extraordinary in position for anyone he was permanently on call uh 7 days a week um you know every night of the week he was on call and i th- you know there was this famous incident that occurred when um um you know the 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 department was completely overwhelmed i think with major trauma and he was down one or two or more junior doctors uh the waiting room was full of people with you know less urgent problems and I think he simply thought what is the best way of dealing with this and you know went out to the room and said if there's anybody here not actually dying would you ever f off now whether he said f off or not I don't know but that is the that is the apocryphal urban myth within the within the hospital and I can see exactly why he would have done that it was the only way of dealing with that particular situation and you know this is the kind of pressure that doctors Within the Irish Health Service are routinely, you know, under and the kind of decisions that they are routinely forced into, into into making. This is one of the best doctors I've ever worked with, by the way, and I have nothing but regard for him. Yeah, it was as you say, um, signifies the
0: pressure. You also, you 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 you've, you've a lot to say, as do most of your colleagues. I'd suggest or those that who are, who are forthcoming about the whole managerial class, and I I see um. You Mentioned about weekly messages from the well being manager. Uh, th- three tips on spirituality.
1: Yes, in fact, <laughs> there were three tips uh, one of which was on spirituality, one on so diet, exor- yeah, and one yeah. on exercise. Yeah, um, these used to arrive every Monday morning to everybody working in the hospital, so I'd arrive at my office on Monday morning and I'd sit down before starting my clinic and check the emails. And invariably there would be an email from the, uh, this head of wellbeing uh, uh, giving me these, um, these sort of banal pieces of advice on a, on a, on a, on a weekly uh, uh, basis. I mean, I, I've, I've mocked these uh, little uh, banalities, I suppose, because um they're so useless. Um, they're so unhelpful and they're so banal that the only human reaction to it is mockery. And I think that that somehow, once you laughed at them and mocked them, that they became less intrusive and less irritating. Um, so I, I collected a huge list of the, the spiritual um uh, pieces of advice, and I had this image of this person in their office, wherever they were, with books by the Dalai Lama and Deepak Chopra. Uh, you know, picking out little pieces to send to everybody on a Monday morning, just as about they were, just before they were to head down to the emergency department to see all the patients on trolleys. It was so removed from the reality uh, of the kind of work that we were we, we, we were doing. But health services are kind of full of this kind of raw mesh I presume you're familiar with the phrase raw mesh but I'm very familiar with it Jay. I love it so the health service is full of this kind of uh of of raw mesh um, and this kind of uh you know uh, advice you know well the 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 system may be awful, you know, there's not enough beds, everybody's on trolleys. But listen, how, read this little bit piece of advice from the Dalai Lama and you'll be grand. Or practice a bit of mindfulness and off you go, everything will be great. Um, and I think it's kind of, it's incredibly naive, but I think it's kind of insulting to the people who actually work there. They're, you know, they're not children, you know. We know how bad it is, you know, telling us to you know, eat a pair a day or, you know, dance uh, like nobody is looking is is not going to help, you know. Yeah. The, a, a couple of examples there. Accept your flaws. They make you you. That's right. Dance yeah.
0: like no one is watching. Yes. Eat a pair a day. Yes. <laughs> I can see. I I, I I can see why you have to take a humorous approach because yeah. the alternative might be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. would yeah. be conducive to, the, to, to a hospital, to put it that no, way. No, no, no. Um, and in your own speciality, Seamus, Mm. You dealt with uh, far more serious issue. A lot of liver damage. Yeah. You 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 make one mention of a a, a patient who was quite astonished that her nightly nagging of whiskey could cause her such liver damage, and yeah. and she blamed her GP.
1: Yes, um, she blamed her GP for not prescribing a sleeping tablet, and uh, told me that uh, that uh, she had to consume uh whiskey as an alternative to get to, to sleep at night. Um, Ireland and Britain have seen an epidemic of alcohol-related liver disease over the last 10-20 years. And this has is not was the main workload, inpatient workload, acute workload in my speciality. So when I started in the mid-80s, you know, liver cirrhosis was certainly there. But we didn't see vast numbers of people with it. They tended to be elderly and male, and there weren't that many of them. By the, mid, by the Celtic Tiger, it was an epidemic. And it wasn't just old men. It was very often young women. Um, and the youngest people I've dealt with were in their early 20s i sorry, Seamus, would that have been directly attributable to alcohol? Absolutely, completely attributable to alcohol. So um, I had, uh, the first year I came back to Cork, I had um, a patient aged 26 die of alcohol-related liver disease. Uh, the youngest I've had uh, was 21, I think, with established cirrhosis. So this is a uh, this is a a real public health crisis and a, an epidemic. Now, our alcohol consumption as a nation peaked a couple of a few years ago, and it's slowly dropping. And the recent uh, legislative changes will eventually feed into a further drop. But there is a lag phase then of some time before you see it falling off in death rates from alcohol related liver disease. So this is a huge problem, uh, relatively young population. I've seen many, many people, men and women, die in their 30s and 40s, some in their 20s. Uh, so a huge, huge problem and the biggest change in my speciality in my lifetime. And what I'd find, and
0: maybe i come from a position of ignorance in this, but we know Alcohol culturally, you could, you could call it a national lubricant in some ways, it has always been there. There's certainly an image that in previous times, in some respects, it was possibly far worse. But you seem to be suggesting that your direct experience is it becoming problems for individuals is something that has massively increased in recent decades. I, is any of that attributable to the fact that it might have gone undetected or un, untreated or anything in previous decades? Or is it all down to a major increase in, in,
1: in the volume of drinking and the pattern of drinking among the population? It's the latter. There, there is, it's well established uh, over, throughout the world that the death rate from cirrhosis is directly related to the per capita consumption of alcohol in that country. We were actually at the bottom of the European League table back in the 80s when I started out. And you may think that's odd because the Irish always had this great reputation as being drinkers. But you might remember, Mick, that people of your parents and my parents' generation, many of them were completely teetotal. There was a very strong pioneer and total abstinence movement in this country. And I certainly remember many people of my parents' generation who were were pioneers the other thing as well is that we didn't drink at home very much. Um, you might recall that the bottle of whiskey might be produced on the odd occasion if there was a visitor, but my parents didn't drink wine at home. Uh, you know, um, so our alcohol consumption has steadily and increased over the past two or three, two decades in in, in particular. And alcohol became available everywhere. You, you know, you couldn't go to a shop or a petrol station or a supermarket without seeing alcohol on on display. Whereas back in, when I was a kid, you know, it was like the sort of Frank O'Connor stories. My dad went to the pub after mass before the Sunday dinner. He had a pint. And I was there with, you know, a bottle of Tanora and a bag of tato And back we went for our, our dinner. And that was it. You know, my parents didn't drink wine at home. They might have done on Christmas Day, I suppose. That would be about it. Whereas now, drinking wine every day of the week has become, you know, completely normalised amongst the, you know, particularly amongst the sort of professional middle classes.
0: Very true. Uh, I suppose an interesting aspect of that too is as you said, there was a high percentage of people who didn't drink at all. And um, that's that's a highly unusual phenomenon in itself. And culturally, you could wonder about where that was coming from. But that's... (laughs) I suppose that that's not a medical issue. That's more we're getting into a different uh, area there. Seamus, just your own background. What was there medicine in your family?
1: No, not at all. Um, so my father uh, worked in Ford's uh, in the maintenance department. Uh, he was a plaster and stone mason by trade, and he worked uh, in the maintenance department in Ford's for most of it, certainly from when I was uh, uh, born from from then until retirement um my mother was a homemaker uh, women didn't work very much in those days back in the 60s um so no I didn't come from a from a medical background uh, at all and your books which I say are extremely
0: readable they also um they give an impression that, I don't know is jaundiced the right word, but you certainly have a, a an unorthodox
1: view of the profession. What attracted you to it in the first place? Well, I think my decision to go into medicine was a kind of a pragmatic one. So, you know, when you do well at school and... You know, the teachers are saying, well, he's a clever lad now. He should probably go to university. And neither of my parents had been to university and they didn't know anything very much about it. Um, We weren't from that kind of background. But there was a feeling at home and my parents were very much of the view that uh, I should do, if I was going to university, uh, uh, that I should do something vocational, something practical, something that would have a job at the end of it. And I tossed around the various sort of things and I thought, well, uh, medicine might be good because it might unite both a sort of science um, background and it would also be dealing with people, which would be good. And I had some very sort of unrealistic uh, and kind of romantic ideas about being a doctor from reading these novels by A.J. Cronin when I was a teenager. You probably don't remember A.J. Cronin. But anyway, A.J. Cronin Cronin was this doctor who became a novelist. And he wrote these. uh, He was a hugely popular author way back from the 30s right through until his death in in the 80s. And he hugely popular no he wasn't the greatest writer in the world but they the, these books sold in bucket loads and he wrote a lot of um, autobiographical books about um being a doctor which somewhat kind of glamorized the uh what the profession was uh, uh was like So that was my background. I had very little idea of what it was going to be like because I didn't come from a professional background unlike a lot of my classmates who were the sons and daughters of of doctors. So I didn't have any uh, background like that. What would you tell your 18-year-old self in that respect now? Setting out, uh, not committed, but thinking of going into it. It's difficult to say um, because on the one hand, um, as I've said in the book, it's the worst job in the world. And on the other hand, it's the best job in the world. And I still can't decide which because there were days when I thought both. I think that it's a great job in terms of that, the intimacy you have with people, the privileged uh, entry into their lives. um, You see everything. um, um, But it's also an incredibly demanding job Um, And I mean, not just physically, but emotionally and even spiritually. The downside of error is incredibly high. There are very few jobs where error is so punished as as medicine. Um, And, um, you know, I, I, I keep quoting this phrase and it's not mine, which is that we work in teams, but we still take blame as individuals. So medicine is a dangerous job in that. Uh, the, the downside the, the, of the fallout of error is catastrophic. You know, in every other walk of life, if something goes wrong, people gather around the person who's made the mistake and say, Asher, don't worry, do you know, nobody died. Um, and unfortunately, that's not something that you can say to somebody in medicine who's made a major uh, follow-up. Um, you know, so you carry all of that with you to your grave, and every mistake that I've ever made is etched upon my mind. And another doctor writer, Henry Marsh, who uh, is a surgeon, wrote about every surgeon carrying a cemetery of their mistakes inside their head to their grave, and 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 I completely get that.
0: Yeah, I I I, I can see the image. The the reason I ask you about that, Seamus, is because I'm just trying to calculate, but. Uh, when you were 18 or deciding to go into medicine, around that time, we're talking uh, late 70s, I think, around there. And that coincides with the roughly, I think, the end of what you believe is a golden age in medicine. That's right. So from that perspective, you going in there now, quite obviously at that period, you wouldn't have known it was a golden age, but I, in, in, it might have been there in the ether in some ex- respect. But to the same extent then, if somebody was going in now, Okay, yeah. Would you advise them
1: differently? Right. Um, um, the golden age that you refer to uh, is something that I described in my second book, um, Can Medicine Be Cured? And I argued that there was a golden age of about 50 years from the mid-30s to the mid-80s. And there was, this was a period of extraordinary innovation and development within medicine. Um, so you had antibiotics, Arrived. Effective treatment for tuberculosis arrived. Immunization uh, arrived. Polio, influenza, diphtheria, measles, etc., etc. All this stuff like CT scanning, MRI scanning, all of this arrived. Uh, The um, DNA was discovered. The double helix was discovered. You had organ transplantation. You had dialysis. You, you, You had this huge acceleration in discovery and innovation in medicine. And just to put, I I put that into context in my book by, well, in fact, in the talk that I give as well, I show a picture of my mother's family in 1940, uh, 45, uh, 45. And uh, it it shows my mother, who was the youngest of nine. And there's a family uh, photograph. And in the back, you can see the youngest son, my uncle Billy, uh, who at the time was about Uh, 15, 16. Looks dreadful. Looks awful. You can tell from this photograph, this black and white photograph that he's ill. And he died about a year and a half later of spinal tuberculosis. And he died just before the very first ever randomised control trial in medicine, which is now the sort of gold standard for doing medical trials. The very first ever randomised control trial ever on anything was on streptomycin and tuberculosis, which proved that it worked. And he just missed all of that. So that's what life was like for all, for people before this golden age and this golden age offered, ushered in a period where our expectation of medicine grew dramatically back in those days in the 40s my, you know there was a very low expectation of what medicine could do so the golden age ushered in this period of innovation and discovery and it but it also changed people's um expectation of medicine so I came into medicine on the tail end of that uh, golden age. Um, what would I say to people going into the profession uh, now? Um, I think things have changed um, a great deal. Um, it has become, as I think I mentioned earlier on, incredibly protocolized. So what you do is driven not by your experience, by your judgment, by your intuition, but driven by protocols which are written down in black and white. And I argued in my last books that some of these protocols, particularly the protocol to do with sepsis, I would regard it as misguided. Um, uh, And I think that the future for medicine, and I already saw it towards the end of my career, was a massive protocolization of practice, um, a disregard for the old um, uh, verities and skills of clinical examination, clinical judgment, experience, intuition. Those things were no longer regarded as important. Um, and I think the other thing that has changed dramatically and will continue to get worse is that if you walk onto a hospital ward nowadays and you look at the junior doctors, the overwhelming likelihood is that they will be sat in front of a computer screen, not at the bedside of a patient.
0: Yeah, and, and I I think, just reflecting on that there, another element to that is, as you said yourself, and I, I noticed this myself to some extent, I, I wasn't, wouldn't be included in the cohort I'm referring to, but very bright pupils uh, you go back 40 years or whatever, it, you know, it was that suggested medicine is the thing for you. I just wonder now, very bright pupils, do they look towards Silicon Valley or somewhere rather than the, the, the local hospital in terms of where the, the, their talents may lay, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, that medicine is a career where character is more important than cleverness. And... um people of high intellectual attainment may, to a certain extent, um, uh, find it frustrating. Um, There was a great piece by Janan Ganesh, uh, who is a journalist with the Financial Times, writes uh, a column every Saturday. And he wrote a piece a couple of years ago, you know, uh, why become a doctor when you can have a real status, uh, when you can have real status uh, in Silicon Valley. And he argued that jobs like medicine that traditionally had high status and high responsibility and a lot of respect from the general public were now seen increasingly as, you know, service providers and that the real status now was with this kind of techno elite in Silicon Valley. And I think he's absolutely right. Yeah.
0: Uh, Another theme that runs through your book, Seamus, is I, I think you're socially conscious in terms of the outcomes for those particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds. And in that vein, you you, you coined a phrase, uh, shit life syndrome, which you uh, suggested it was something that a lot of people died from. I'm, I'm assuming that is something that would apply, in your estimation, far more to those from more disadvantaged backgrounds.
1: Yes. I'm one of those few people who, as I've grown older, I have moved from the right to the left. I've become a bit of an old pinko in my um, in my old age. So, um, Great, uh which is an unusual journey to me because it's normally the other way around. So you have all these people who were in the sort of communist youth movement, they find themselves in their uh, 60s sort of uh, Reaganites and Thatcherites and reactionaries. I I've I've kind of done the 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 completely opposite uh, journey. So, um I've I, I've been influenced by a, a, a lot of work in relation to social disadvantage and health. It's been calculated that medicine and healthcare accounts for only about ten percent of variation in health within countries. Most of what uh, influences your health is down to your income. Um your job uh, and your education and where you live so within Britain for example um, life expectancy between the richest and the most disadvantaged areas is appalling it's nearly twenty years it is staggering it is staggering um and um medicine contributes, relatively little in terms of the health of populations and many people feel that rather than investing billions upon billions in health systems, that we should invest uh, in addressing inequality and deprivation and unemployment and lack of education. And I have a great deal of sympathy for that argument. And this is a problem globally uh, as well. So um, i I'm a member of a commission set up by The Lancet. The Lancet is probably the premier British medical journal. There are medical journal in Britain, um, if not the world. And they run these regular uh, commissions on particular topics. And I'm involved in one on uh, death. As I wrote a book about death and dying, my first book, they ran another commission um, on global access to palliative care and to pain relief in people dying and the results were absolutely appalling and staggering. They found that about nearly half, 45% of people dying every year around the world, die without access to simple things like opiates, let alone palliative care and hospices. So we have this massive inequality globally. And we also have this massive inequality, even within high income countries like Britain and, and and Ireland. Now, getting back to shit life syndrome, I, I've been saddled with this. I didn't coin it at all. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's OK um, that there was a review of my new book in The Times uh, the weekend before last. And the opening line was Seamus O'Mani is most famous for coining the term shit life syndrome. I, I didn't at all. I, I happened to mention it. Um, uh, um, but, uh, I was, I, I, I did not, uh, I did not coin it. Uh, but by shit, like You'd su- subscribe to it though, would you I subscribe to the idea? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, GPs working in deprived areas would very much subscribe to it as well. Um, and they must feel a great deal of impotence and frustration that, what are essentially social and economic and political problems are brought to their doorstep to fix, which they can't possibly do.
0: One other thing, uh, again, that I came across in some of your your um, your writings, Seamus, was in relation to overprescription of drugs and how you describe it. I think is as pushing people towards patienthood. Uh,
1: well, the pharmaceutical industry has been massively successful in. Um, what I would call preventive prescribing. Um, So the classic example would be um, statins for high cholesterol um, um, and also drugs for um, high blood pressure, sleeping tablets and so on. These are called blockbuster drugs. And the reason why they're called blockbuster is that if you prescribe a statin, if you're a GP or a consultant, you put a patient on a statin, let's say Lipitor or whatever for high cholesterol. The patient is going to take that medication forever until the day they die. So in, from an economic perspective for the drug company, that is exactly what they want. A course of antibiotics is a is far lower um, uh, importance to them from a profit point of view. You, you're only going to take it for seven or 10 days you go on, you go on a, um, a statin or a drug for high blood pressure and uh, the patient is on it forever. And these blockbuster drugs came in in the, um, in the 70s and they were blockbusters because they, they made huge profits for the pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical industry kind of essentially um, persuaded um, influential doctors to go out and um, persuade their colleagues um, and their fellow professionals as to the benefits of these medications. So going back to statins, um, there are many, many people taking statins. But if you look at the raw data on these, the overwhelming majority of people who take a statin for decades will not benefit from them. So we're treating populations, not individuals. And polypharmacy, which has been defined as taking five or more medications a day, has become this huge societal problem. Uh, So my brother Dennis, who's a geriatrician, this is his thing. This is what he works on. He's an academic geriatrician. And he has looked at uh, the downside of polypharmacy, particularly in older people. Polypharmacy is responsible for a huge percentage of emergency admissions to hospital in elderly people. And he shows this brilliant um, slide of um, the risk of a major uh, side effect. Um, If you're taking 10 or more medications a day, the risk of a major side effect is 100%. And routinely, I was seeing people coming into my clinic on 10, 15, 20 medications. So this has become this major, uh, not just medical problem, but a sort of societal problem. God, it is,
0: yeah. I mean, it is, I suppose, when (laughs) when you haven't reached that juncture yet, you find it hard to envisage, but I'm sure we all do, definitely. Seamus, final thing, COVID, and you got out of your permanent position just before it. Um, Briefly, are you glad or sorry, that you've missed the last year at the post you were at?
1: Okay, I'm both. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that I missed the biggest health story in my lifetime, that I wasn't, you know, there at the cold face. I'm glad because I would have been over 60, uh, and that's when you're at risk. Um, so um, somebody that somebody I worked with in Edinburgh, uh, thirty years ago um uh, another doctor um, who was three years older than me, I was talking to on a zoom meeting just before christmas and he died of covid three weeks later um having spent some uh, having died in the intensive care unit in his own hospital in in manchester and uh, and that and that kind of focused my attention on it so I was glad for that reason, because I think, you know, once you go over 60 as a healthcare worker, you're certainly at risk. Um, I can tell you that I'm looking forward, however, to uh, going back as a volunteer vaccinator in the community programme. Um, and just before I was uh, talking to you this afternoon, I completed another module of online training. Um, so I am going to be working as a community vaccinator, I hope, within the next few weeks. Um, so I, I will be working in some capacity. It may not be um, in what I was doing before, but I will be contributing my my bit.
0: Great stuff. And from your wry observations, if I could put it that way, do you see things changing after COVID, particularly in the medical world and in more general
1: terms, society beyond? OK, to just let's look at medicine. Um... I think that medicine will change. Um, I think there'll be an awful lot more telemedicine, digital health. Um, I was interested to see Colm Henry, the chief medical officer, a quote from him where he said that we cannot possibly go back to the pre-COVID situation of people on trolleys. I hope that's right. And I hope that there will now be the political will finally, after two decades, to uh, to fix it. I'm slightly worried about where doctors will be. I mean, we saw all this uh, footage on the television of people in Britain out clapping the doctors and nurses, but the statistics tell a completely different story and they do here as well. So the Medical Protection Society did a survey, both in Britain and Ireland, amongst GPs, and they found that in both jurisdictions, One third of them had reported physical or verbal abuse from patients during the pandemic. It's even worse in uh, Latin America and the Indian subcontinent where attacks on doctors and nurses have become uh, epidemic. Um, So I worry slightly uh, for that reason. Uh, despite all of that, uh, applications to medical school in the US went up by 20 percent and they put this down to the, what they're calling the Fauci effect after Anthony, uh, Anthony Fauci. Uh, will medicine change? Um, I think that um, the inequalities that we talked about will remain and will, may even get worse. It's been the best thing in decades for the pharmaceutical industry and they, they admit it. So back last October, Purdue Pharma were fined $8 billion by the US Justice Department. A month later comes the AstraZeneca vaccine and suddenly pharma is the good guy. So they have restored their reputation. So it's been fabulous for pharma. Um, I think it has only reinforced this kind of biomedical model of Medical research and medical practice, and I think uh, COVID has only shown up starkly um, inequalities. Um, it uh, mortality has been disproportionately in poor, disadvantaged uh, communities. So, very good. Um- The Ministry
0: of Bodies, published by Head of Zeus and available at all online outlets, is Seamus's book and it'll be in the shops once they open. Seamus O'Mahony, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure, Mick. Thanks very much. That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast, or at the very least, listen to it and tell all your friends and family about it. And let's be careful out there. Stay by the wall.